Welcome to Leading for Life Stories Season 2. My name is Bob Judson and I'm your host for this podcast and I'm absolutely delighted to have you here joining me. Thanks very much and I really, really hope you enjoy what follows. Thanks very much for joining me once again. I'll start this episode with a trigger warning if you like. Now, this is firmly going to be about flying and it's flying on operations and so I suspect the leadership tips from this episode will be limited, if, if any, to be perfectly honest. But I wanted to get some of this stuff over because I think it's, it's a key chapter, if you like, in my uh, flying career and a, a really important facet of, of what I did. And, and to some extent, it defined the flying that I think an awful lot of us did over, the, uh, over this particular era. Many pilots had had spent their entire RAF careers in the Cold War, which was preparation for conflict and not actually doing any active conflict work at all. I missed the Gulf War. I was on exchange, and I've catalogued my time on exchange on a different podcast to this. And so getting back to being in a command appointment, which I talked about a couple of episodes ago, was the first opportunity I actually had to to fly on operations in a Jaguar doing anything that resembled the role we had actually properly trained for. And my chance came with northern Iraq, and it was the northern no-fly zone north of the 36th parallel, which was established not very long at all after the, the Gulf War in 1991 had ended, and there was a need to protect the, the ethnic Kurdish population from further aggression from Saddam Hussein and, and his military. Pretty much at the same time, slightly later, there was a, a separate no-fly zone that was established in the south of Iraq, south of initially the 32nd parallel, and then ultimately moved up to the 33rd. And that was to do the same thing, but in this, in this instance, protect the Shia Marsh Arabs. Both of those involved significant coalition air, air assets who were flying over the top of of that area and effectively preventing any Iraqi air activity that would have been, been a hazard to to those on the ground. So, you know, particularly him launching aircraft to go and bomb anybody, uh, but it also obviously enabled us to make sure that it minimised activity against us in terms of surface-to-air threat and, and so on and so forth. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about this because it covered a couple of periods of my career. I Initially, when I was a flight commander... From uh, 1992 through to 95, and then subsequently as a squadron commander from 1999 to 2002, both those periods were were heavily influenced by by operations with the uh, with the Jaguar, uh, and and very much the Iraq operation was the dominant one of those two. There was some Bosnian stuff in the in the middle, and I'll, I'll talk about that on a separate podcast because that was equally interesting in terms of what we did there. But lots of things I thought I'd try and cover here. I thought I'd talk a little bit about the aeroplane and and what kind of fit we operated in and, and the upgrades we'd had to, to make it work over time. I'll talk a little bit about the kind of deployment structure as well, the way we, we operated, the... Others that were in the coalition, what else was there? What other assets, uh, air assets, were we working with? Life at Inslick Air Force Base, because that was where we were based, and it was a it was a really interesting interesting place to be. 
And I'll talk through a typical mission. I'll give you an idea about you know what we did, how we set about planning it, what the duration was, what the threats and responses were that we would take to the things there. And the transition over time as as we move through the operation, because as the airplane got more capable, as the threat changed to some extent, we had to change ourselves in terms of the way we we actually operated as well. So I hope that's of interest. If it's not, you can stop listening now and the and switch on again when I hope when I've got a guest back again or a or a more thematic one that talks specifically about leadership. Although this is largely flying dominated. It has to be said, and I think I said it on on the command episode previously that leadership in this role was also really important. This was you know flying at the at the sharp end. We were facing a real threat as opposed to a simulated threat, and so your behaviour, your response, your ability, your your preparation, and an ability to actually lead the team in the air and on the ground was really important. So. It's not like it was devoid of anything that was that was re- resembling leadership. It's just the focus of what I'm going to talk about this time is is more around the actual specifics of of what we did on the flying front. Just a little bit of the the history element, I suppose. The the Northern No Fly Zone, as I say, started in 1991. It went all the way through actually until 2003, when the Second Gulf War started. And effectively, that negated the need for for a No Fly Zone subsequently because. Post that, Saddam Hussein was no longer in power. There was no, not the same requirement at all, and, and that effectively closed down the the need for the operation. But so for twelve years, the we had continuous operations done, not exclusively by the Jaguar Force. The Harrier Force took a took a big chunk of time in the north, and in the south, it was very much dominated by the the Tornado Force. But it nonetheless, from an, a Royal Air Force point of view, as a whole. It was a very, very significant area of activity for us over a long period of time. The aircraft, when we started in at the end of the Gulf War, we'd done a number of modifications to, to the airplanes to go and partake in the Gulf War, and we had some changes that were really, really relevant to operations. We had two radios. We'd improved our radios, so we had anti-jamming-type radios that we could you know, could work with with a reasonable amount of security. They weren't, they weren't fully encrypted, secure radios. But you know the fact that they frequency hopped all the time made them very difficult to intercept. We changed a number of the avionics and the and the displays and bits in the airplane as well, so that actually it was starting to to really get to towards the ultimate capability it had. In a, a few years later on, with real integration of things like the reconnaissance pod into into the aircraft as well. Sadly, though, we still had the same engines. And the Jaguar was renowned for being an underpowered airplane. There were lots of jokes through its entire life, really, about needing the curvature of the earth to take off and having the second engine just so it could take it to the scene of the crash if you lost the first engine. And there was a little bit of truth in that. The the engines were poor, and particularly in hot weather and in heavy aircraft fits, so with lots of things hanging off the aircraft, that made it doubly challenging. And therefore, operating from Insulik, which was in a Turkish Air Force base, but it was uh, in, run entirely by the Americans uh, in uh, the northeast corner of the Mediterranean, if you like, just near the city of Adana. Uh, that was a huge airbase with a big long runway, 10,000 foot runway, uh, a number of, uh, of American air assets stationed there permanently, but also some, uh, some Turkish ones there too. And it, it, it was hot. It was, it was Mediterranean weather. So a lot of the time of the year, the, the challenge for the Jaguar was just getting airborne in the first place. Because we would fly 
uh, all our missions there with two underwing drop tanks, two large large fuel tanks, which we needed to give us the you know the additional range that we required. Initially, at least, our low level optimized reconnaissance pod, which is, was what we'd had right through the Cold War, which was was a pretty big pod on the center line that was you know reasonably not not particularly high drag, but was was certainly heavy. We flew with an electronic jamming pod so uh, that was on one wing and a chaff pod a chaff dispenser on the other wing to give us some defense against against the threats that were there and also had flare dispensers on the underside of the airplane for for infrared threats that would would potentially come against us we also flew because we wanted to be not entirely toothless and, and unarmed in this we had two air-to-air missiles and on the jaguar in in the fit we had those were over the wing so they sat on top of the of the wing which was particularly you know, made the, the aircraft look pretty good, but also was amazing when you actually fired a missile from off off the top of the wing, which I had the privilege to do on a on a training event some years later, because it literally goes right past the cockpit as the as it comes off the wing, and that's that's the, the biggest firework you're ever going to see going and doing that. And we had a couple of thirty millimeter cannon, and would would fly with with those fully loaded and and ready to to engage in, in either. In theory, in the air-to-air role, more realistically, in the air-to-ground role, if we'd actually needed to to employ them there. So we did have a very heavy aeroplane. It was essentially pretty close to maximum takeoff weight in hot weather with engines that, at best, were uh, were going to be challenged in in that kind of environment. So the first and sportiest element of any sortie really was the takeoff. We used to use pretty much all the runway. Would calculate very carefully what the what the limitations were. And would aim to rotate, so just lift off two seconds before the departure end arrestor cable. So that would give us the opportunity to actually, if we had an engine failure at the very last minute, which we would not have been able to climb away from in in that configuration, then we would would abort the takeoff at the very last minute and would still have enough reaction time to drop the hook and engage the the arrestor cable at the far end of the runway. And that was a long way down the runway. So we'd then get airborne just over that and then then climb out over over some duration to to get to cruising altitude and, and I'll come back to the kind of salty profile in a in a second. So it was a challenging time for the aeroplane, no question about that. Uh, and we worked up on that basis. We knew that we were going to face some of the these challenges. We we knew also when we got into Iraq, in the early days at least, we were going to be doing some very, very low flying, and I'll come back to why in a in a little while. And so before we went, we would train down to 100 feet. Our normal low flying height in the UK it was and is 250 feet in most parts of, of the UK. But we have various areas where we can train all the way down to 100 feet if we, if we need to. Now, 100 feet is 30 yards, essentially. So if, you, you, if you're not in the aviation game, if you turn around and just look at the, the distance involved, think of a cricket pitch, that's 22 yards. So you're just longer than a cricket pitch. Turn that on its end, and that's the height you're flying at, at well in excess of 500 miles an hour. And so everything becomes relevant to you at that height. You know, every contour, every house, every little blip in the landscape, trees, big trees, versus little trees, etc., are really, really significant. And it's amazing fun, but it's also incredibly demanding because obviously you have to really pay attention to, to what you're doing. So that was the first thing, was working down to make sure we had the 
the skills effectively in place to do the physical flying we needed to do. The other big thing was reconnaissance because I was very lucky. I'd come from a couple of reconnaissance tours. I'd I'd been at on two squadron, which I've previously talked about as a dedicated reconnaissance pilot, and I'd also been at on my exchange tour at Bremgarten, also in a dedicated reconnaissance role. So I knew a lot about taking pictures, and uh, and I'd been been pretty proficient at that for some time. That wasn't true for everybody on on the force. There were lots of people who had been in the attack side of the game, so just in the bombing side, really, rather than reconnaissance. We had one squadron at, at RF Coldshaw of the three that was a mixed attack reconnaissance squadron. But in reality, the, what happened very quickly when we started doing these operations was everyone started to become a lot more proficient at reconnaissance, and particularly the type of reconnaissance we needed to do for, for the mission in, in northern Iraq. So those skills were really important to build up. The other one, which again I've talked about previously, was air-to-air refueling, where every single sortie we did flying out of Insulet was was at least one air-to-air refueling requirement as part of the sortie. And so that being good at that was really important, not least because the refueling area we were uh, were using when we got on operations was above mountains, so it meant there was quite a lot of turbulence above those above those mountains. Quite often the weather wasn't great. And so you could find yourself literally in cloud refueling on a in a behind a in, in, on a bumpy day behind a tanker where the hoses were moving around an awful lot, and it was really challenging to to actually make the refueling work. And at that point, we were too far away from Insulic to go back to Insulic if we hadn't actually got fuel. So we would have had to have diverted to another airbase in in Turkey. And for a large part of the time we were there, the one that we would predominantly use was a place called Diyarbakir. And when I first got there and first started doing operations, Diyarbakir, the city, was in the middle of a typhoid epidemic. So it did focus your mind a little bit that actually we really didn't want to go and divert to, to Diyarbakir if we could possibly avoid it. And, and getting fuel into the airplane was therefore a priority for sure. So that's the physical preparation bit done. Then organizationally, most of the squadrons would go and do two months at a time on uh, on ops. And, and typically within that period, you would go individually and probably spend about a month away. We would try very hard not to make it longer than that, because if you went for longer than that, then it affected currency and familiarity with some of the other roles and capabilities we needed to maintain, because the flying we were doing was obviously very specific on operations. So that was typically the way we would operate. And we'll work a, a cycle effectively to rotate both the pilots and and also the ground crew, so that everyone had a had a fair crap going through it. It wasn't a difficult mission to sell in many ways, though, because Inslet was a nice place. It was an American base. American bases are typically pretty well found. The accommodation was was not bad at all. Certainly after the I think at the very initial stages it was a bit ropey, but then after that we got into some decent decent accommodation and it was was really reasonably okay. For the most part, we did have quite a lot of people, including quite a number of our ground crew for a, lo- a large chunk of time who were living in tents. Not unusual for us at all to do that, but it was a uh, clearly less preferred than being in, uh, in decent um, brick-built accommodation. But it was, facilities-wise, was a, was a good place to be. We could get off the base, we could go out to Adana, we could go and do a little bit of tourism around if you wanted to as well and had the time. The sort of recreational activities at the base were were not bad at all. So when you weren't flying, there were you know there were gyms to go to. There was actually a little golf course you could go and play at, and and a range of you know eating establishments and so on. So it wasn't an unpopular place to to go to, and and certainly in in living conditions terms was 
was far better than than many operational options that exist for for all, all across the services really alongside the the UK deployment it was predominantly a US led and US organized deployment there were french involved initially the french pulled out in around 1996 though and also the turks used to get involved themselves and and that was sometimes entertaining when we got turkish aircraft in as part of the of, of a given mission because they weren't used to operating with us it was a real challenge to to integrate them effectively and safely but nonetheless it was their base it was their country and therefore obviously you know we were very conscious we had to had to make that work but essentially what we'd try and do for a daily daily thing was put a package of airplanes together that was going to get us into an operating in the no fly zone with minimum risk to us maximum opportunity to be effective for delivery of the mission and that essentially meant we took a series of big airplanes so would have airborne warning and control who would turn around and provide air picture for us they would be our eyes and ears in terms of what was actually going on in the in the airspace particularly given obviously the jaguar no radar so you know we're we're operating largely with just what we can see out the window as opposed to to anything else that you can detect and so the AWACS would be the the air picture. You'd also have a a couple of intelligence related airplanes who would be listening very hard for what was going on on the ground and the and looking at providing information to us about potential emerging threats so we could could operate and respond to those. All those aircraft would stand back. They would stay be able to operate north of the Iraqi border, so they would stay in Turkey in a similar place to where we were tanking, actually, and our tankers would also stay outside Iraq and, and operate just north so we could, could go in, refuel, drop off the tanker, and then go into effectively the hot zone, as it were, to, you know, to operate without risking the bigger aeroplanes. The aircraft that went into the, the no-fly zone was also, there was a substantial number of different um, parts to the package. We were doing reconnaissance, and I'll talk more about that specifically in a minute. But it was a no-fly zone, so one of the key requirements was to have air defence aircraft in there that would would be able to engage any Iraqi aircraft that were ultimately foolish enough to push north of the 36th parallel. They would be shot down, I and mean, there would be. It was very clear the rules of engagement were very clear that you know, we would not tolerate that, and and we used to monitor and warn and you know, broadcast very much to anything that was flying south of the 36th if they started looking as though they were getting close then they would be told in no uncertain terms not to to penetrate that airspace. Um, but we also had a lot of threats on the ground. Saddam Hussein at the time we were there, but certainly initially had about three divisions worth of, of, of hardware on the ground. That's a huge amount of kit. And everything from small arms and, you know, basic rifles and, and any other thing that fires a bullet and up to and including missile systems. But the rules of engagement that we had in place meant that if he had radar-guided missile systems, which tend to be the most sophisticated and able to operate at the highest altitude, then if he illuminated the radars associated with those, then they would be a legitimate target for us immediately if there was a fire control radar. So because they were presenting a direct threat to to any aircraft in the package, we would would not tolerate that and we would obviously take those out. So the net result was he didn't illuminate many fire control radars most of the time because it was effectively suicide for you know, for those that operated them and clearly they were precious bits of equipment that he didn't really want to keep losing on a on a very regular basis. 
and we had a mixture of aircraft that would provide us that information. There was, there was some that, that in the bigger aircraft intelligence package that would be able to see and listen to communications that would tell us what was going on. There were also in the no-fly zone, we would typically have jamming aircraft and anti-radiation missile equipped aircraft who could operate against those kind of threats if they had popped up. And we would plan very carefully with those guys to make sure that where we were operating, because bear in mind the the area of Iraq we were operating was essentially the size of Wales. It was a pretty decent chunk of airspace. We needed to make sure that we weren't one end of that airspace while our kind of support assets were the other end. So we needed to plan to make sure they were able to provide coverage for us doing what we did. And we had a number of other aircraft in there as well who were bomb equipped and they were there to to provide suppression if needed of any other targets. And the way that we operated typically was if there was any kind of rules of engagement trip from the Iraqi side so that the if they fired anything at us or engaged us in any way, then that would result in a rules of engagement trigger that would en- enable us, it opened a window for us to be able to respond against a series of pre-planned targets. Saddam Hussein's forces were pretty canny in that a lot of the time what they did was they turned around and put their capability, uh, their anti-aircraft capability, whether it's guns or whether it was a uh, missile, optically guided missile systems, they would put them in centers of population and areas where we, we they knew it was going to be very difficult for us, if not impossible for us to actually strike them. And bear in mind, we're talking about a, a generation before some of the very modern, ultra-precision, very low-yield warhead weapons that we have now. So we wouldn't want to go in and bomb with with bigger bombs in in towns, etc., because we were worried about the collateral damage that that would inflict. But what it did do was create conditions where we could bomb other targets. So we would always go with a predefined list that for that particular day that would become vulnerable to to attack if he attacked us from something, even if that was in a different geographic location. So it meant for quite an exciting time while you were operating in what was called the vulnerable window. So we would we would have for any given day, we would have a window of, of time where we would be doing our no-fly zone policing. That would obviously vary. Most of the time it was daytime, not nighttime, because the you know, obviously for our missions in particular, we didn't do this stuff at night. Occasionally they would operate at night as well, but the Iraqi military themselves had a very limited night capability. So you know, it was predominantly a, a daytime effort. And we would typically launch three pairs of aircraft on any given day in sequence. So they were covering the entirety of that vulnerable window, which most often would be six hours or so of, of time that we needed to make sure we had, had aircraft in there to, you know, to cover. And so there was quite a lot of coordination, again, involved around that as to who was going to get airborne when and and how we were going to operate. And we we clearly had to have some redundancy in case we lost any aircraft for serviceability issues and and those sorts of things as well. So that made for for fun on the ground when we did the plan. And typically we did that the day before. So we'd then have everything, we'd be flying probably relatively early quite often. We'd then do come back, debrief, and then we'll sit there and sort out planning for uh, for the next day. And you didn't fly every day, but you did fly most of the days you were there on a on a deployment. You'd, you'd typically be able quite a bit. And every mission was long for compared to our normal missions. Normal mission in the UK, probably an hour 15, unrefueled, and we didn't do tanking that often. So actually the missions we were doing in, in the north were typically two hours 20. 
but could be quite a bit longer than that, especially if somebody had gone unserviceable and and you needed to cover their window set as well. And and that was a bit of process that we'll I'll come back to in a second. And then we'll put it together and actually go. So we'd have a big brief, we'd sort out who was you know who was doing what within that brief. And so every element would do their own specific briefing, but then we'll bring it together with a big overall package formation brief that you know, described how everything was going to be stitched together. And these are quite convoluted, these big complicated emissions to get everyone out and back safely at the right altitude. So they're obviously not conflicting with each other. Bearing in mind, the weather wasn't always flawless to, you know, we couldn't fly necessarily always in clear air mass. And different aircraft operated with the, with different timelines in terms of how long they could stay airborne, how much refueling they needed, so on. Most of the air assets, though, needed refueling, particularly the, the fighter type of aircraft. And so would be flying, you know, with at least one or more more air refuelings on any given sortie. And if I come back and talk about a typical mission, just work through what that actually felt like, would would get dressed up to to go and we would fly on operations very differently to the way we flew in peacetime. So we, we would still fly with all the normal kit we had for survival. But because we were in a combat zone, we would take sanitize ourselves, we'd take away all take off all Badges or personal items, everything that could identify you as who you were, and we obviously had identity tags that we flew with, and we we basically would operate on the basis of what was required under the Geneva Convention, which in the, in the original days was name, rank, number, date of birth. That was what we would have had to have given up if we been captured, and you didn't really want anything more than that to be available to anyone. So you, you'd take away any any personal stuff from you, and. We flew with a thing called a combat survival waistcoat, which would be a an addition to our life jacket and so on that would fly underneath the uh, the life jacket, and that had a whole range of different things in it, including a holster for our pistol would fly armed with a with a self defense weapon for if you'd ended up on the ground, but it also had a a specialized radio for helping with our recovery and also a a GPS system to enable us to to get accurate positioning on the ground and, and again assist with getting a recovery into to pick us up because clearly the very last thing we wanted to be was shot down in the first place but if you were shot down being captured would be particularly disastrous so we were really really keen to you know to avoid that and and actually mercifully that never happened in the entirety of the operation we didn't lose an airplane through any kind of enemy action and so from our side, there was was no never a requirement for for any of this. But we trained extensively to be ready for it and make sure you were personally prepared, mentally and physically, in terms of what you were actually going to do. And, and obviously, we also flew with a, a changes to what we had in our survival kit. Water being an addition. Obviously, we flew with quite a bit of additional water because we're flying in relatively desert conditions. And you know, the suits we had, we flew with desert flying suits, which were better color and also better temperature. To be perfectly honest, for, for you know, both in the air and on the ground to be able to manage that. So you get dressed, you head out to the airplane, you'd get go through all the normal startup procedure, you'd check in, you'd, you'd make sure everything was ready to go, you'd test all the extra systems we had, and we had a few additional systems in terms of our radios, our anti-jam radios that I'd already talked about, and we had new or better um, identification friend of foe, so secondary surveillance radar systems that we would be able to use that would provide uh, someone interrogating our airplane with a very clear picture as to who I was, whether am I friendly or, or, or am I not? 
and all of those systems needed to be tested before we before we got airborne and and launched on the mission. And some of those were absolute go items. You had to have it working. Once we're ready, out we go. We taxi to to the end of the runway and and launch. And we then had about a fifty minute transit to to get ourselves to the air refueling area. The tanker would typically have gone gone ahead. But if we're the first mission of the day, quite often you'd go with the tanker and accompany him all the way to, uh, um, to the refueling area. Then we'd refuel when we got there, so we'd make sure we were full of fuel before we we dropped into into the the actual area of responsibility itself in in northern Iraq. And once that was all good, everything was ready. We would drop off the tanker and would go and head in to go and start our mission which was pre-planned. So we had a, uh, a very clear route that we were going to fly and we were going to try and stick to that route. And when we first started doing these missions and when I started doing it as a, as a new pilot back on the, on the Jaguar Force as a flight commander, the threat was such that we would operate at a very, very low level. And the capability we had in terms of the reconnaissance and the pictures we could take meant that our cameras were optimized for operating at low level. So we really didn't have an ability to operate up at you know away from the small arms threat and the and the anti anti aircraft artillery threat at, at low level, and that was a big issue for uh, for the package because most of the rest of the airplanes were operating well up above us. They were up you know flying in the sixteen, seventeen, eighteen thousand feet plus mode. We were well and truly down below that. We were flying below a hundred feet. We trained down to a hundred feet in the UK when we operated in. Uh, in northern Iraq, we were flying as low as we were comfortable with flying individually and and where we could do that safely. And it made for the most exhilarating flying ever in my career, without a shadow of a doubt. It was incredibly exciting to to operate often well below 100 feet, you know, well above 450 knots. And you know, and you you really do get a sense of the ground rushing by. We've got some amazing reconnaissance pictures because obviously where normally you're taking a picture of something from significantly higher up, and you know, you'd have if it was a I don't know, a, an artillery piece, for example, in the frame that you'd that you'd provide to the photo interpreters, the the photo frame, then they'd be looking at a relatively small image that they'd be looking at through a stereoscope to turn around and identify what it was. We were providing something you could basically have taken with a smartphone, and you know it was really, really amazing to to get those kind of images and be very, very close to you know to the kit that was on the ground. And there was a lot of kit on the ground. And as a reconnaissance pilot, that was fantastic. It was you know I'd loved the the opportunity to go and have a look at what was there and fly over what had been predominantly it was mostly Russian kit, so Warsaw Pact kit that the Iraqis had. And that's what we trained for for the whole Cold War. So this was just uh, nirvana, really, to uh, to be able to turn around and operate in uh, in in that kind of regime. We would typically do half a dozen targets or so uh, in uh, in the time we were there. We'd have a, a plan to go and uh, go and attack those. We would always operate as a pair, a mutually supporting pair of airplanes to look for threats that were coming up against us, and we had tactics that would maximise our our ability to defend each other and protect each other. And obviously we were constantly in communication with everyone else that was in the, in the bigger package of airplanes as well to provide us with ongoing threat information. And if, if it looked like the threat was too high for any reason, we may or may, or may not miss out a target or, or reroute to avoid something. 
mercifully, we took very, very little small arms fire in in those days because obviously the the threat is relatively low in that you're flying very, very fast. So the chances of someone actually pulling enough lead on on you to be able to hit you with a with a rifle bullet is small. But obviously, if you're flying straight at somebody, it's slightly different, and the and therefore the the threat could be could be there. And we knew that, but we you know, we just had to get on and deliver the mission. So that's what we did. And at the end of what was a very exhilarating, I suppose, twenty minutes, half an hour, typically in the in covering our our targets in the in the in the relatively small area we were in, going around at really quite high speed, would climb out from from there and head back up towards where the tankers were and then ultimately towards home. And you'd do a check-in with the tanker initially and the and find out whether there was any requirement to to go back to him and also with the airborne warning control who would potentially have mission a further mission detail for us. And and what would quite often happen would be that if something had changed and there was a new target requirement that we hadn't foreseen or if somebody in a later wave and one of our later pairs, the aircraft had broken, then you would obviously, because we had to go in as a pair, you would always, one of us would stay and, and send one home in order to join up with the, you know, with the other aircraft that, that now needed somebody to go in with him into, into the zone. Occasionally, if we lost a whole pair, or if we had additional tasking, then the whole pair would get retasked. And we'd go back to the tanker, and essentially start the whole process again, but would refuel and and make sure we were fully topped up with fuel, and then would take new tasking. And of course, you're sitting trying to you know, get new tasking. And in the early days, we couldn't do this in any way automatic in an automatic fashion. We had to basically manually write down what we were doing, and that was really challenging. You know, you're sat there trying to fly reasonable formation on a on a tanker. And actually be in a position where you you could take down the tasking, input all the information into the nav system, make sure you were fully ready to go because you didn't want to be doing that when you're in in enemy territory, as it were. And then you'd launch and, and go and do the whole thing again. The added pressure that, that that brought was not insignificant, but the other pressure that came along sometimes was the need to go to the loo because you were obviously trying to fly reasonably well hydrated. If you had to go and do an additional set of tasking, then the missions could suddenly stretch up into the three and even four hour range. And if you've ever sat in a fast jet cockpit on an ejection seat and looked at the way the harness structure works and the way that all the kit you're wearing, you'll realize that actually deciding that you need to have a, a quick bathroom break in the middle of this is a really, really big challenge but especially when you've got all the aforementioned need to formate on the tanker and everything else at the same time. So mercifully, it only ever happened to me once, and I'm glad it was only once, because it was not an easy exercise to uh, make the ejection seat safe so you, put this, so you couldn't possibly pull the seat band handle. You'd have to unstrap the, uh, yourself from the seat and then do the, do the business and then sort yourself out and restrap yourself back in again. In an aeroplane where there is no autopilot at all, and which doesn't fly on its own very happily at all. So if you take your hands off the throttles and stick to do anything, then pretty quickly the aeroplane starts turning or descending or climbing, because it, no matter how well you trim it out, it's it's never going to stay stay flying straight. Or or and often we weren't flying straight; we we're in turns and sitting there trying to formate. So it was a tricky exercise in the extreme. 
and and not one you wanted to repeat terribly often. But we'd then go back and we'd do another mission potentially, and uh, and then return home if the and and that was again fifty minute transit on the way uh, way back home, and see and slick as you as you got back, return back in, typically you know visual recovery back in to to break into the circuit and land. And then you would go through the debriefing process and we'd go and get changed. We'd, we'd obviously have some, some bit of water to rehydrate and something to eat. And, the, and then we'll go and talk to the photo interpreters about what we'd seen. And, and just as we did in a normal reconnaissance sortie back peacetime wise, then that would be a really, uh, really key element to, you know, to all of that. So it, it, was, it was really interesting, challenging, and a very, very fulfilling flying without a without a shadow of a doubt. Tremendous fun to do. Just occasionally it got a bit too much fun though, and you would have something happen. You'd either have some kind of airborne emergency with something going wrong in the airplane, and you're a long way from home, and particularly if that happened in, in enemy territory, then obviously you had to react in a, in a very quickly and in a different way. We would mutually abort, would go together, and and not leave a single airplane on its own uh, going around there. So we'd, we'd always operate together and stay together as a as a pair and hopefully be able to go back home rather than, than having to divert because obviously all, all the attendant problems that that diversion brought with you. But it did focus your mind rather differently in terms of the way you flew because obviously you have more options in normal day-to-day UK flying, if you like, in in, in what goes on. Everything I've described so far effectively covered the first period that I did operational flying while I was a flight commander on on 54 Squadron at, at Coltishall. I then had a pretty lengthy gap at the end of that tour. I went, went for the first time, I went to Grand Tours. I did a series of staff tours. And I didn't come back to flying the Jaguar or flying at all, really, until I came back as a squadron commander. And, and that was in uh, 1999. So I had a gap of basically just about five years when I was out of the cockpit and somewhat out of the loop in terms of of what was actually happening. But I was also in a position where the first of those staff jobs that I was doing, I was actually running the Jaguar upgrade program with a wing commander and, and myself in the in the Ministry of Defence where we were looking at the avionic and, and capability upgrade we were bringing to the aeroplane to really transform it and bring it to a, a whole new level of capability, given it was now so heavily involved in, in operations. And so when I returned as a squadron commander in 1999 and we were back doing northern Iraq again, it was we'd been replaced by the Harrier and then subsequently had returned. After the Harriers had done a stint, we'd gone back and, and taken back over from them. And it was amazing to go and see the capability difference in the airplane that we had. The much of things that the things that we were doing were the same. The actual base was very, very similar, and the setup with there was very similar. The package that I've described in terms of the airplanes and so on that we'd operate with was very, very similar. But our our airplane had changed dramatically. We were now flying with a much lighter weight, different reconnaissance pod that had a long range oblique photographic camera that you could point at some distance to a target so you didn't have to overfly the target at all and you could see in the airplane exactly what the camera was looking at in terms of where it was what its swathe of coverage was on your moving map in the airplane the integration in terms of navigation system and so on was was really amazing to to give us way better perspective 
And so we operated differently. We operated entirely at medium level now instead of being at a low level, which took away some of the fun element, but introduced a whole series of additional challenges around operating with the other airplanes in the package. And you are now in the same sort of altitude blocks as they were and, and making sure that deconfliction work was really important. But the other thing it did was brought us into the threat envelope. It took us out of the small arms and, and very you know, small anti-aircraft artillery threat area. And it brought us into heavier anti-aircraft artillery and also missile threat. And that was definitely a, a, a concern and something we had to pay attention to because although we didn't have radar-guided threats against us, which would have been the most significant and and most of Saddam Hussein's surface-to-air missile arsenal, if you like, was relatively old, relatively unsophisticated, and where, where we had pretty good countermeasures against against everything. These things are still a threat. You know, you can never ignore the threat. You have to pay absolute attention to it. And, and it certainly concentrates your mind. I can still remember flying, you know, the first time that, uh, you know, flying around at medium level and suddenly the, the clouds around me were black and puffy instead of white and puffy. And I'm going, you know, initially the sort of first response was, that's weird. And then I suddenly realized this is flak as opposed to anything else. And that generates obviously a uh, you know, requirement to, uh, you know, to respond. So although we'd been engaged quite a bit beforehand and we knew we were being engaged by small arms, they were, you know, you never see that and you didn't have a direct threat from it. This was now a bigger threat, bigger weapons that if they had hit you, then they certainly were going to do a very substantial amount of damage. So we had to pay real serious attention to to that and, and our tactics and training were all worked up to, to try and make sure that we were best equipped to you know, to negate, mitigate and and defend against any threats that were were thrown against us. But the overall mission structure hadn't changed a a great deal. Just our capability had as we'd gone through the uh, through the time frame. And I guess you'd like to think that, wouldn't you? That you know, if you're there for that length of time, you're going to continually improve. Your your processes will be better. Your equipment will be better, and and therefore your results will also be better. And that was absolutely the case. It was a very proud chapter, I think, for for the Jaguar Force. Gulf War, which I wasn't involved with, but which the guys that were did heroically well. They did an amazing job in in difficult circumstances. And then the operational chapter through what was Iraq and Bosnia, and I'll talk about Bosnia on a separate occasion, all the way up to uh, to Gulf War Two when the Jaguars didn't participate. They were based at Inslick. They would have been planned to be part of the uh, the missions if Turkey had actually allowed missions from the north, but it didn't, and therefore they didn't participate. And so that closed the operational chapter, really, for uh, for the flying they were doing there. But it was, it was fantastic to have been part of it and to have experienced a lot of it and a lot of that kind of flying because it really did provide a capstone for all of the training you spend so much time doing and work so hard to achieve because that was was what it was all about ultimately i hope you found this interesting as i said at the beginning it's very much a sort of personal data dump if you like of some of the stuff we did when we were doing operations and and the kind of flying we were doing and just to give you a perspective of of what actually happened but of of all of the things I did, I suspect probably it was the most challenging and most fun in in the same breath of my whole flying career, really. So it was a, a really great, great element. I'll see you next time. Thank you very much for listening. If you got this far, I really appreciate it because I appreciate this is a bit longer than my normal personal podcasts. And I'll, 
I'll speak to you very soon. Take care. Bye now. 